Hey, everybody. Welcome to the We're Born for This podcast with Father John Ricardo, Mary Gilfoyle. We're a couple of missionaries at Acts 29. This is the podcast where we talk about anything and everything having to do with transformation in the church. Mary, how are you enjoying the Windy City? I am, Father John. We're in Chicago. Yeah, for a Archdiocesan Day of Renewal. We love being here and... We'll head home from here, and then we come back across Lake Michigan. That's right. Wisconsin's our next stop. Yeah, Madison for the Eucharistic Congress. So uh, thank you, Delta, for getting us all the places that we need to get to. And I'm I'm excited for uh, this conversation that we're going to have on a few number of verses, but a really dense topic, um, which I pray will be both hopeful and sobering. So what's our... What's our episode title? So uh, today's topic is preparing for the final exam. And who doesn't want to know what the final exam is, right? Yeah, well, the Lord's going to tell us. So uh, let's pray so that our, our ears will be attentive to what he wants to say. Let's pray. Please pray for us right now that we'll communicate what we think the Lord wants us to communicate in a way that will make sense and will be, again, hopeful and yet appropriately sobering. Right? So, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would descend upon us right now as we reflect upon the word that you inspired the prophet Ezekiel to write, a word which is directed to us now. Help us to take serious the choices that we make today. Help us to understand the purpose that we have been created free with the potential either to say yes or no. And do what you promised through Ezekiel, namely give us new hearts, hearts which are inclined to love God and to love our neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm going to start us out, Father John, if I can, just reading from Ezekiel 18. So this is Ezekiel 18, verses 25 through 28. Thus says the Lord, you say the Lord's way is not fair. Hear now, house of Israel. Is it my way that is unfair, or rather are not your ways unfair? When someone virtuous turns away from virtue to commit iniquity and dies, it is because of the iniquity he committed that he must die. But if he turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is right and just, he shall preserve his life. Since he has turned away from all the sins that he has committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So I don't, is it just me or like, do you have a question in your head like, why does God say, why are you people saying my way is not fair? This would seem to be like ridiculous. Kind of a no fair. brainer. Yeah. Right. Like do good, you get rewarded, do bad, you get, you get rewarded. The consequences of our choices. Right? So I know Jesus says on that day, you will have no questions, but I got a question right now for him. I don't understand why, why these people are objecting. That maybe I'm just a, a moron, but I, that, that's my first in, initial reaction. It's like, come on, people, don't you get it? Like, why are you complaining at the fact that that we are responsible for what we do? But um, let, let's try to let's try to set the stage for this. Brant Petrie and John Bergsman have a great introduction to the Old Testament, which I think we've mentioned before. It's kind of like a Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. 
very readable and yet very scholarly at the same time. And one of the things that they say in their commentary on this passage is um, the absolute importance of the state in which you die. So, you know, the sinner who repents is ultimately going to be saved. The righteous man who backslides will ultimately be lost. And so we're going to be rewarded according to our ways. So we are talking about what's often called one of the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So this is that real day, which is now a day closer than yesterday, when you and I and everybody who's listening to us is going to stand face-to-face in front of God. So I three questions kind of come to mind that maybe we can probe. The first question would be, when we die, what's going to happen? Um, a second question would flow from what, what I often hear um, people mistakenly think that because God's merciful, everything just kind of disappears no matter what, except for people like Hitler and Pol Pot and those kind of people, which is not true. So the, a question here would be then, what's the relationship between mercy and justice and then the third question that's in my mind as I pray with this passage is, like, is, as a believer, like as a disciple of Jesus, when I think about the Lord coming back and standing in front of him, am I supposed to be longing for that or am I supposed to be dreading it? Because I don't know about you, but if I'm a little bit honest, um, I feel a little bit of both. both. Yeah, both <laughs> yeah, mindsets. I can't wait for the Lord to come back and yet I'm a little nervous at the same time, right? So these are questions of ultimate importance. And the reason for the title of the episode is this. A great teacher tells you in advance, this is going to be the final exam. And God is the best of teachers. And he has abundantly, clearly told us, guys, this is the exam. When you die and you stand in front of me, this is the question and I know you love the, the, the way one of the doctors of the church answers the question we're going to get asked. So I'll, I'll save that for you. So I just, you know, even if, I've heard you say this, Father John, for years, that a great teacher tells you what's on the exam. And as I, as I ponder that, I'm thinking of Matthew 25, where we hear about the final judgment. I've always read the final judgment in my mm-hmm. mind as the final exam. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think just having that language is just very helpful. And, and, and you've heard me mention before uh, in our conversations that John of the Cross uh, is one of my favorite, favorite saints. And I had a note in my kitchen on my refrigerator for years. It said, in the twilight of our lives, we will be judged by love. Like, like did you love? Right. And, 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 and this comes in part from Jesus' response to the question about the greatest commandment. And his answer, and he tells us that we are to love both God and our neighbor. Which sounds really which simple. Which sounds really simple. Right, so at first glance, you know, like, hey, when I die, I'm going to be judged by love. Cool, I'm going to be judged by love. How hard can this be? It's pretty done. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's rip open Jesus' response. So you got to love the Lord, not just love the Lord, love the Lord with your whole heart, mm-hmm. your whole mind. Mm-hmm. All your soul, all, your, all soul. your strength. I mean, so as you're listening to us right now, as I'm looking at you right now, we're having this conversation. Can I honestly say that I love the Lord with all of my heart? Um, 
Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. No. One, two, some days, most days. Um, all my soul, all my strength. Um, no. How about, how about do you love your neighbor as yourself? All the time. Always. No matter what. You treat your brother and sister the way you want your brother and sister to treat you always, all the time, no matter what. Shoot. So suddenly this really simple answer got a little bit more complex. So Father John, would you say that at the end of the day, all sin is a failure to love well or to love in an ordered way? Yeah, I think that's a great way to think Um, about it, actually. And I'm just thinking about the frequency with which I go to confession, I'm thinking I need to go, I need to be living in that box every single day. Yeah. Augustine used to describe sin as, you know, sin is um, love of self to the contempt of God Mm. and, and righteousness is contempt of self for loving God. Right. Mm. So I I love the Lord, not me. Sin is I love me, not God. So a disordered love. And you know something, Father Jonas, I'm just hearing you like, break all of that open. Um, this is one of the Bible verses that I taught to our daughter early on uh, comes from um, Psalm 19. And it says, you know, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, my God, my rock and my redeemer. And in this season of my life, four years I have used and continue to use that as a litmus test for how poorly I love. Hmm. Because oftentimes the words of my mouth are not loving. My thoughts are not loving. And then, of course, like this failure to love God and others well. So, so the answer to that, do we do that? Do, do we love completely and totally as we should? Absolutely So not. I'm going to come back to that at the very end because you just said something which hmm. um, here's why I love these conversations because um, we come at this from, you know, um, the perspective of a, a man and a woman, a priest and a member of the laity um, with the different ways that God speaks to us. And I think one of the things that's so beautiful is how the Lord allows you to simplify some things sometimes, which just really resonate with not just like people, but with me. But I'm going to come back to that at the okay, very end. Sure. So let's, let's try to come, let's, let's come at these questions. So when I die, when you die, what's going to happen? And I've always found Father Francis Martin, who you, I know you met, he was one of my mentors. I heard him say something that was so helpful for me. He said, we are saved by grace and grace alone that, you know, the unmerited favor of God or or another way of putting that would might, which might be in the language of like the rescue project would be that Jesus's death and resurrection is the only way for any human being to be rescued, delivered from the power, the grip of the power of death, the power of sin, and the grip of Satan, because he's defeated them, and on that day, when he comes back, he will destroy them. There is no other way for anybody to escape their grip. So I'm saved by grace, rescued by grace and grace alone. That said, Francis would go on, we're judged by our works. And scripture, including this passage from Ezekiel, is abundantly clear on this. So like what I do in my life, it matters, matters right? And, and we got some scriptures that are, are worth maybe just offering people to pray with. Point, point us to a, a, a couple of places where we can let the word of God just 
reminded of this reality so that we don't think this is just like John and Mary's right. viewpoint. Right. So I, I think one of the ones I would, we would point people to would be the passage that I just referenced, you know, in Matthew 25, um, where Jesus talks about that final judgment um, and the sheeps and the goats, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in a particular way, you know, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. So it's, it's what you did and it's what you failed to do. Right. So, so it was like sins of commission and then sins of omission. So, so that's the first passage on my it, mind. And what, it's interesting if I can make a quick sure. observation, faith doesn't show up there. No. It's, it it, it it's doesn't have anything to do with what we believe, what we do. not that belief doesn't matter. Of course it matters, but it, yeah, the, the only difference between them is what they did and didn't what do. I love that. Do. And then the other one comes from the same gospel. So Matthew seven twenty one, uh, where we hear Jesus say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one, and here's, here's what you just referenced, Father John, who does the will of my heavenly father. So again, it's what we do. Um, maybe Revelation 20, um, I think it's verse 12, and, 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 we, and we read um, how I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged according to their works. Right? And then maybe the last one comes from um, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, where we read, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, right? So this is just a follow-up from the New Testament making very, very clear the importance of what yeah, our response matters. Do. Yeah, and right. thanks be to God, one of our "quote unquote" works, one of the things we can do is repent. Is repent. Now, I'm gonna. I, I mentioned at the beginning. I, I want to hide behind some uh, people who are much more intelligent than me. And I have found Pope Benedict XVI's reflections on judgment mm-hmm. and standing in front of God to be some of the most helpful and. Uh, clearly articulated things I've ever seen. I've, I've always been just blown away by both Benedict's uh, intellect, but his humility too. And so th- I want to share some thoughts, uh, both from two places. One is uh, a great little collection of essays that he wrote over the course of many years entitled Credo for Today. And there's a chapter in there just on the line in the creed, uh, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And then there's some other thoughts from uh, his encyclical letter on hope, which is entitled Space Salvi. So this is from Credo for today. This is what he says. We're still looking at that question, how am I going to get judged? He says, there is a, a freedom that is not canceled out even by grace and indeed is brought by it face to face with itself. Man's final fate is not forced upon him regardless of the decisions he's made in his life. So again, my choices matter. Like there's an incredible responsibility to freedom, right? The purpose of freedom is not to be able to do whatever the heck I want. That's not freedom. That's lawlessness. The purpose of freedom is able to choose to love, which again is the great commandment, to love God and to love our neighbor. He goes on to say, this assertion is in any case also necessary in order to draw the line between faith and false dogmatism or a false Christian self-confidence. Since the days of the early church fathers, it has always been an essential task of Christian preaching to make people aware of this identity of responsibility 
and to contrast it with the false confidence engendered by merely saying, Lord, Lord, as he refers back to, to Matthew 7. And he, he goes on to say, anyone who, who entrusts himself to faith becomes aware that both exist. On one hand, the radical character of the grace that frees helpless man, and no less the abiding seriousness of the responsibility that summons man day after day. Both together mean that the Christian enjoys, on the one hand, the liberating, detached tranquility of him who lives on that excess of divine justice known as Jesus Christ. What a great expression, that excess of divine justice known as Jesus Christ. There's a tranquility that knows in the last analysis, I can't destroy what he's built up. For in himself, man lives with the dreadful knowledge that his power to destroy is infinitely greater than his power to build up. But this same man knows that in Christ, the power to build up has proven infinitely stronger. Let me give you one last quote from the same document. He says, at the same time, the Christian knows, however, that he is not free to do whatever he pleases, that his activity is not a game that God allows him and does not take seriously. He knows that he must answer for his actions, that he owes an account as a steward of what has been entrusted to him. There can only be responsibility where there is someone to be responsible to, someone to put the questions. Faith in the last judgment holds this questioning of our life over our heads so that we cannot forget it for a moment. That's why the saints would always, you know, there's stories of saints who used to eat dinner with a skull on their kitchen table, right? To, re- oh, their to remember, death was like, always before oh, that's them. right, that's going to be me one day, right? Nothing and no one empowers us to trivialize the tremendous seriousness involved in such knowledge. It shows our life to be a serious business, and precisely by doing so, gives it its dignity. I, I, I love this. I know this is dense. It can be challenging sometimes perhaps to listen. This is again from Credo for Today. Here, here's maybe one of the ways to summarize what, what I hear in Benedict. I'm reminded of, I think it's St. Gregory of Nyssa, who's one of the early church fathers. He says, um, we are all, morally speaking, our own parents. That's a great image just to think about. What's he mean by that? He means... I am who I am because of the choices that I have made. Meaning our actions are self-determining. Exactly. I become, so what do I get out of like choosing the good? You become good. That's right. What do you you get out of choosing evil? You become evil. This is why the church always teaches, as, as horrific as it is to be the victim of injustice, and we've all been that. It's worse to actually do the injustice because when I choose to do evil, I make myself to be evil. Whereas the first person who's really suffering has only been inflicted right. with evil. Does that make sense? I just, I, I, that's where I always found freedom to be just one giant massive responsibility. Like there's, there's a teenager in all of us. Like, I just don't want to be accountable for how I choose to live. How dare you hold me accountable for the choices I've made? That's a really immature way of living, right? Right. 
So, Father John, so I, I'm trying to process all of this as you're just breaking this open for us, but I have a, I have a question on my mind going back to what it is, you know, going back to uh, the words in the first reading this week, and it's that relationship between mercy and justice. Can, can you just take, a, take us, take me a little deeper with that? Yeah, I'm going to hide behind Benedict again because uh, that way if you have a problem, anybody has an argument, they can... <laughs> they can talk to him, although he's going to be challenging to talk to you right now. So here's, here's this is, again, um, one of the ways that uh, the late Holy Father talks about this. And, and I'm, I'm quoting him just because, again, I find this to be such a rich reflection. It's chewy, as a friend of mine would say it. He says, God is justice and creates justice. This is our consolation and hope. And in his justice, there's also grace. This we know by turning our gaze to the crucified and risen Jesus. Both these things, justice and grace, must be seen in their correct inner relationship. And then here's like one of the money lines. Grace doesn't cancel out justice. Doesn't make wrong into right. It's not a sponge which just wipes everything away so that whatever someone has done on earth ends up being of equal value. Everything inside us just like rebels against that, right? Like, what do you, you mean the person who's done wickedness just gets a free pass at the end of their life if they just say, oh, I'm sorry? Because I think that's how some people understand repentance. And that's not how it works. He, Benedict goes on to say, Dostoevsky, the great Russian author, he says, for example, was right to protest against this kind of heaven and this kind of grace in the brothers Karamazov. Evildoers in the end do not sit at the table at the eternal banquet beside their victims without distinction as though nothing had happened. And he says in another place, I think this is again from Credo for Today. He says, the unrighteousness of the world does not have the last word, not even by being wiped out indiscriminately in a universal act of grace. On the contrary, there is a last court of appeal that preserves justice in order thus to be able to perfect love to perfect love, excuse me. A love that overthrew justice would create injustice and thus cease to be anything but a caricature of love. True love is excess of justice, excess that goes farther than justice, but never destruction of justice, which must be and must remain the basic form of love. In other words, think of it, here's the picture. Jesus on the cross. So we've, we, we talk often in the Rescue Project about Jesus on the cross is doing a number of things. We highlight three. He's going to war to rescue us. Making He's showing us the Father's love. He's becoming sin. So Jesus on the cross is showing me sin is a big deal. It cost God his blood. It's not trivial. Right. So what you often say, too, I mean, I know you're quoting someone. If that's the remedy, what we see Jesus doing on the cross, mm. what must the wound be? Right. right. That's the impact of sin. So, Father John, recognizing that we have all fallen short in our lives, that we've been at both times, going back to like Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, we have been both sheep and goats in our lives. We have been both weeds and wheat. What what are we saying? What is, what is Pope Benedict saying here in this? Yeah, should I be eager for Jesus to come back or should I be like, uh-oh? Right. It's a, it is and it's sobering. Both. Yeah, that's why it's hopeful. It's a, it's a sober hope, right? So 
um, Paul says in Philippians to work out your salvation in, in fear, fear and, trembling. and trembling. Right. right. This, this is why, because yeah. like on, on one hand, like on that day, I'm going to stand alone before God. And yet I'm not alone because the one I'm standing before is in fact, he's both my judge and my advocate. And in fact, my brother, my rescuer. Yeah. Who out of love for me, mindful that I was ungodly, went to the cross. That's why there's so much hope. He, he, his face is, he's not some detached God, right? So again, in Space Salvi, Benedict's letter on hope, here, here's how he, he, he talks about that day. You know, on the one hand, you can think of people who are just like, it, it looks pretty clear from history that you can identify some figures, identify some figures who, who appear as though they have just totally closed themselves off to good and to truth. Now, please God, they all repented at their deathbed, but it looks like they just have no interest in God whatsoever, and that would be, a, that would be hell. And then there's some other people who are just, you know, Mother Teresa or, you know, some of the saints down through history. And you're like, okay, I understand how they're going right in, but like, what about the rest of us? Right, what about... Because I'm a mixed what bag. What about me? Right. Yeah, you right, know, right. I, I got a little sheep and I got a little goat. So here's what he says. He says, for the great majority of people, we may suppose there remains in the depths of their being an ultimate interior closeness to truth, to love, to God, in the concrete choices of life, however, those things that I do that make me who I am, it's covered over by ever new compromises with evil. Much filth covers purity, but the thirst for purity remains, and it still constantly reemerges from all that is base and remains present in the soul. And then he just goes on. This is why I love Benedict. What happens to such individuals when they appear before the judge? That would be pretty much Every single one of us. What happens to us, he asks. Will all the impurity they have amassed through life suddenly cease to matter? What else might occur? And then he offers a spectacular exegesis of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Where um, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about on that day, the day of judgment, we're going to appear before God and everybody's work's going to be examined. And he says, some, pe you know, some people build on uh, wood and straw and whatnot. And on that day, we are, um, the, the person's going to be judged and they're going to be saved as though through fire. They will experience loss. Some of the things that we've built, some of the choices that we've made, which weren't great choices, they're going to get burned up. Which, which is an image Paul's using, right? Because we're, we're talking about things we don't know how to describe in human language. So on that day, I'm going to stand face to face in front of God and, and, and I'm going to experience pain. And the pain is going to be a blissful pain. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So when we're standing before Jesus, the merciful and just judge is part of the pain father john that we'll experience because we're standing before jesus and we see him as he is and we see ourselves for who we are and we see the disparity between pure love 
and who we are? Is, is that part of the blissful pain or am I missing something? No, you just nailed it. That's exactly it. Because at that day, we'll, be, we'll recognize I have simply failed to love mm-hmm. the way I want to love. But I love him and I do love my neighbor. I just don't do it well all the time. Mm-hmm. And I love God. I just don't love him all, well all the time. But I love him. And so the, 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 the anguish of that, it's, it's going to hurt. Mm-hmm. Like when you know you've hurt somebody you love, it mm-hmm. hurts, mm-hmm. right? It, it doesn't hurt because, oh, like they found out I said something. It hurts because we love people, right. right? But I love, Benedict says, you know, some theologians are of the opinion that the quote unquote fire which burns and saves is Jesus himself. How it's his gaze. It's mm-hmm. the encounter. And, and before him, he says, you know, all our falsehood melts away. This encounter with him as it burns us, transforms and frees us, allowing us to become truly ourselves. And, and going back to where you began at the very beginning, which I think is so powerful when you said, so sin is just a failure to love excellently mm-hmm. and a disordered love, mm-hmm. which is exactly Augustine's way of describing sin. I remember hearing someone say one time, thinking about that day, I can't wait for purgatory, for this encounter with Jesus. And someone heard them and went, what? Because <laughs> I think people have images of you know medieval torture chambers or something like that. He says, why in the world are you looking forward to purgatory? He says, because on that day, I will finally be able to love the Lord and my neighbor and myself the way I long to. The greatest desire of our hearts, right? And to finally have the capacity to do that, which we were created for. Yep. Glorious. Glorious way to end our conversation here, Father John. This was, this was, this was a lot. I, so, so you ended on this beautiful, profound note. And as I was listening to you talk earlier, I was reminded of a deacon friend who came to my office once when I was at the parish. He had come to speak to all of us. And uh, he had this one great line, and it's so simple. I don't know if you remember this. He said, don't be a goat. Mm, I and, love that. And I wrote it down on a piece of like construction paper and I cut it out and I put it on my bulletin board. And to this day, I still have that note on my desk at home. Mary, don't be a goat. It just sounds so simple. I love it. But it's not. It's diff- requires grace, requires our cooperation with that grace. So here's how, here's how Benedict concludes this one section. Maybe we can let him have the last word. On that day when he's going to separate the sheep and the goats, he says, it's not a stranger who judges us, but he whom we know in faith. The judge will advance to meet us, not as the entirely other, but as one of us who knows human existence from inside and has suffered. That's the gospel. That's why we can be hopefully sober or soberly hopeful. And this is true. And because it's true, because God is not a blob, but he is love. Do not be afraid. He's with you. You were born for this. (laughs) 